Welcome to Meet the Neighbor. I'm Laura Tamayo. Thank you for joining the conversation today. It is approximately 1130 in the morning. We're in Addison, Texas, and the interview today is with Valerie Hope. Hello, Valerie. Hello, Laura. Okay, I want to start with a little exercise. I want you to imagine that there is a museum curating your life. (laughs) So what things might be found there? What rooms might be included? Uh, There definitely would be a music room. The music room would be a room with a whole bunch of different albums, like all the albums and cassettes and CDs that I've collected throughout my life all over. Like they would literally line the walls. And then there's like a video screen on one end, karaoke machine. It's all interactive. Like when people go in there, they get to hear and they get to sing or dance to some of my favorite songs. I feel like I have a soundtrack to my life. And then actually in every room in this museum, there would be a different type of music playing. What would the soundtrack be for the music room? Oh, for the music room, it would just be a combination, probably starting around, you know, like when we were kids, my mom used to listen to a lot of like stuff like Barry Manilow or the Bee Gees. So it would be like this kind of easy, yeah. kind of chill, more than a woman <laughs> kind of stuff. And then it would transition to like Janet Jackson, pop 80s kind of stuff, Michael Jackson. There's probably going to be some Broadway musicals thrown in there and some contemporary Christian music and then some salsa, merengue, some reggaeton. And all the way to like Brazilian, you know, Pagaji and Samba. My music tastes have evolved and I just keep adding more and more. So it wouldn't be any one song or any one type of music. It would just be like this mishmash. But karaoke, definitely, because I love singing, especially Mm -hmm. in my car. (laughs) That seems to be like my karaoke booth. It's my car. (laughs) So I don't disturb my neighbors. Um, Yeah, just all kinds of music. I even wake up to music. I probably even have, maybe have a bedroom, like something set up like a bedroom that would be another room. And I've always had all kinds of different things on the walls. Like I went through a phase where I was a new kids on the block fan. So mm-hmm. everything, including the ceiling, had posters of new kids. <laughs> and then in college, I remember having all these different things from different parts of the world, you know, artifacts from different countries, different flags, random stuff from other places that people would give me. And then now I would say, and the bedroom's a little less cluttered. It's a little bit more classy, but I do have some things. You know, you'd think I was shopping at Pier 1 or something. So I have like Chinese uh, calligraphy prints and this like wooden, I don't even know how to describe it. But in that room, I would probably have my wake up music because I always wake up to music. I don't wake up to like, ding, ding, ding. Oh, I hate that. No. That is a horrible As long up. as I can remember, I've always woken up to music. So I would probably put on some of my favorite, you know, wake up songs. And they mm-hmm. all change as the years go. Another room would be something in the kitchen that has a lot of different spices. I really enjoy cooking foods from different parts of the world. And so I shouldn't say different parts of the world with different influences from different parts of the world. So wherever I travel, I sometimes buy spices from those locations and I incorporate that into whatever I'm cooking. Oh yeah, Yeah. I do that a little bit too, to where I don't necessarily do the full dish. Exactly. But if I discover a spice that maybe is not common in my everyday. Totally, yeah. So stuff like that, like I know I have some merken, which is like this little spicy chili powder from Chile. I have some harissa, which is spice paste from from the continent of Africa. I have, I don't even know, Hungarian paprika. I have Canary Island 
spice blend, the spice rub, like just kind of different places I go to or people travel to, I always ask for. Yeah. Can you bring me some spice of some sort. Oh, that's actually a great thing to ask for. Instead yeah. of getting kitschy things that people, yeah. they appreciate the thought, but they're like, what do I do with this thing now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no more space on my fridge for another magnet. <laughs> exactly. No, I don't care for magnets and stuff. But I think, yeah, for the kitchen, it would have to showcase some of the stuff that I, like the different flavors that I've incorporated into my cooking. Yeah. Oh, what other room would there be? Think of playroom. I've always, if, when I have my mansion at some point in my life, I will. No, I got it. The imaginary mansion we all build. Yeah. Yes. I will have a playroom in it. And my playroom would have a big old yoga ball and yoga mats and stuff. So you could do like some of that. Even have a little meditation room nook. But then I'd also have a little trampoline or roller skating rink. Kind of things in my life that I've always found that would be really fun play. Yeah. I'd have a, it'd be adjacent you know, that have some sliding doors and that Jason would be a tennis course. I love to play tennis. Oh, you're a tennis so, player. Yeah. So those are the main rooms that I can think of that would make a, a really cool museum exhibit. Good question. I really like that. That was fun to watch. <laughs> she like watching my head like, oh, what else would be in there? What's the soundtrack for that roller skating rink, I wonder? For the roller skating rink, usually dance music. Anything dance music would be great. You know, I can think of Rock With You by Michael Jackson. I want to rock with you all mm -hmm. night. That one. I can see that one being a really cool skating song. When I think of roller skating rinks, I always think of Boy George. They would always play, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, Like yeah. always, 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 always. I remember that one. I don't have a, a specific type of music that I would associate with roller skating. I just remember I've always loved roller skating. And when we were growing up in Panama, we roller skated outside. Mm -hmm. You know, it yeah. wasn't until we moved to the States and there's very few occasions that I actually went roller skating indoors. But roller skating outside, isn't, there's no sound quality, right? There's maybe you hear some side sides, you drive down, you, you skate past somebody's house and stuff. But no, there's never any real soundtrack to roller skating for me. No, yeah, I guess um, playing outside the soundtrack is, I guess, all the other kids. Yeah, the, car. The, mom, <laughs> the random car. Yeah, exactly. That's the soundtrack. So think about, tell me a significant memory from your childhood, now that we're actually going back to that, that you feel contributed significantly to who you are today. Wow. It's like a moment that, yeah, maybe a moment that comes back a lot. Hmm. Let me think. I have like different images. This one came up actually for me a few days ago. I used to collect bar. I shouldn't say collected Barbies because I wasn't a collector, but I liked Barbies a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I probably had like three. That was my collection. Yeah, but when you're little, <laughs> three is like everything. Yeah, but I remember that it was a big deal for us to get because Barbies were not really cheap. I mean, these were expensive. These were usually mm -hmm. a Christmas gift. That's when you have like, you hold out like the, the nicer stuff is usually for Christmas. I probably collected about three different Barbies. And... Because the other accessories were so expensive, like the Barbie dream house and dream car and the pool and all that stuff, I didn't have any of those. I remember I had the Barbies, I had a case, maybe an outfit, but then my mom or somebody gave me a gift. It was like this random toy house. It wasn't a Barbie house. It was just some of the random, like the Barbies had to like bend over to like fit inside their room. <laughs> Barbie in Wonderland. <laughs> I don't even know what this house was. I remember I was always very protective of my stuff. I'm the only girl. I have three brothers. So I remember having to 
take care of my Barbies, right? I would always have them in the case. When I was done playing with them, I'd put them back in. They'd always sit in the little corner with the little whatever the house was. And my next door neighbor was my best friend. Her name is Michelle. And I remember Michelle was about a year or two younger. I must have been six years old or so, maybe six, seven years old. And Michelle was probably five. She got all the stuff. She had the dream house. She had the pool. She had the Ken doll. She got all this stuff. Did she have the airplane? I don't think she had the airplane. <laughs> now we're talking like- I remember like, like being like the airplane when it came out was like a really big deal. And it was like, oh, the Barbie plane. Yeah, like, I'm a little older. kids on the vlog had a Barbie plane. <laughs> Nobody else did. Back then, I don't think there was a plane for Barbie yet. But I remember going over to her house with my little case, right? And she had all kinds of stuff and she would have them all over the place too. That was the other thing. And one of my Barbies, I remember her, I named her Elena. She was my black Barbie. She had this beautiful red dress and these red hoop earrings and red heels. Somehow when I was playing at Michelle's house with all her stuff, Elena's earring got lost or perhaps it was her shoe. Some small item was misplaced mm -hmm. and I couldn't find it. And Michelle's stuff was all over the place. And because I think I'm looking back, I think, you know, she has so much of it. She didn't necessarily keep track of everything she had, but I was very conscientious about the stuff I had because, you know, I only had three and I wanted to make sure those three were in pristine condition that I decided when I couldn't find the shoes anywhere and all that craziness that I'm never bringing my Barbies here again. I'm going to take care of my own stuff. And that's been kind of like my life. <laughs> fortunately and unfortunately, fortunately, because I generally take really good care of the stuff that I have. Mm -hmm. I'm not one to waste it nor one to mess up with it. I don't mind being experimental in some cases. There are a few Barbies who lost hair, but I, for the most part, really took care of the stuff that I had. And so for me, I think that's carried over to how I take care of things now, even to the point where I've become a little bit more aware of the environment. And I really think about Gosh, if I were to throw away this pair of jeans, for example, if I'm, I'm going to get rid of this pair of jeans because the zipper is broken or there's ripping it or something that can't be repaired, where's it going to go? Will it sit someplace? Sometimes think about what would I do with this item if I can't throw it in the trash? Will it sit in a in the landfill someplace? Yeah, I'm not that extreme, but I'm starting. I noticed that that I'm more conscious of it. So I would say some of that came from my childhood just thinking about how to take care of the things that I have. That and I put my name on everything. You could see my little water <laughs> bottle that has my name. My dad was this way too. He was in the military. You always put your name on things. Mm -hmm. And I put my name on stuff because I don't want people to take it. People remember it belongs to somebody. Yeah. And that someone is me. It's not something random that you found. It's something yes. that you're taking away from me because it's mine. <laughs> Those Barbie earrings. Yeah, they're, the logo there, that's my logo. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. Cool. So that made you more careful with your things. Yeah, careful and conscientious about my stuff. Yeah. And that's more on the serious part. <laughs> if you're talking, because we are talking soundtrack, what is the soundtrack to that moment when you realized you were not going to find the shoe hmm. or the little earring or the whatever? Like, what did that moment feel like to you? Because I associate music a lot with how we feel, right? Less mm -hmm. about the words of the music and more about sensation. So was it just like a very dramatic song? It was probably anger more than anything, or just mm -hmm. anger and frustration that, you know, I don't know if I, I have a song that comes to mind because most music makes me happy. Music for me is when I want to really get pumped up or I want to experience a feeling of joy, I go to music for that. I don't generally listen to music for melancholy mm -hmm. and I'm melancholy. That's, I do it to change the state. I don't know if I would ever listen to music that would make me angry. 
was angry. Oh, not making angry, but I don't, yeah, I can't think of associating music to mode of being angry. I can see using music when I'm angry to lighten me up. Got it. Now, how would people have described you as a child? As a child? Yeah. Precocious. My mom always talked about how her friends would come over. Come over Again, I'm less than 10 years old for sure. Her friends would come over, who were in their 30s, I imagine, at that time, and talk to her. But then she would go take care of something, get them something to drink or eat or whatever. And they'd end up somewhere near me. And I'd start talking to them and asking questions and sharing stuff. And my mom would always tell me, what are you guys talking to this little girl about for so long? She could never understand, like, what is it about these people, these adults, I want to talk to this kid? And I found that for me, talking to people is always so fascinating, especially people who are older. I'd like to ask questions. I would say people always thought I was curious, mature for my age. I was always like, the I want to say teacher's pet because I didn't kiss up to teachers, but I was that student that was always sitting in the front row mm -hmm. that would ask questions. I was always pretty assertive. If I wanted to do something or wanted to know something, I would go find out or ask. So assertive, precocious. I don't personally remember this, but my mom would say that I'd go into someone's home and if I heard a creak in the floor somewhere, I would stand there and walk back and forth and, Mama, ¿y esto por qué está así? Like, why is this like this? What does this make noise? <laughs> <laughs> they should fix it. <laughs> or so generally, like, very curious. And curious, very, yeah. Very ready to ask your questions. And outspoken. Yeah. And independent. That was the other thing, independent. I don't yeah. remember feeling like I needed to have my parents around or my brothers around to do things. You know, I'd go down the street and go get something by myself. Obviously being safe, it was a pretty safe neighborhood, but independence showed up pretty early on in my life. I remember a story my mom told me that, I don't know, I must have been like four years old. We went to the airport to see off my uncle who was moving to the States, like the whole family went to the airport. And there was a point in time with all the different action and activity that was happening. They were like, hey, Valerie, where's Valerie? Where's Valerie? And I guess I was on another floor watching the planes take off. Yeah. Because <laughs> they were all panicked by the time they found me. And, and they were like, hey, what are you doing? I'm, doing I'm just like, I'm just watching the airplanes. What's going on? You guys ready to go? There was no, oh, me, my mom. I don't know where I You were just calm as a cucumber, just chilling out. And I'm, that's kind of shown up in different parts of my life, too. Cool. Yeah. How old were you when you left Panama? Nine. Okay. Children in general, you know, you tend to think that your life is like everybody else's mm -hmm. until something happens that makes you go, huh, maybe my life is somehow different than the life of my friends at home. Maybe, yeah. you know, when I go home, I imagine everyone's life is the same, but no, maybe their life is not exactly like mine. Mm -hmm. And I, can, I think that happens, that, that's a moment that happens over and over. Like, I don't think it's one moment. Sure. But can you think of one of the first times that it dawned on you that your life was different? When we moved to the States? Just in general, because it could have happened even in Panama, right? I'm talking about moments like, I remember the first moment when, was, I think it was first grade, the first time that I went to the bathroom at school and my teacher like walked in, I guess the teacher's lounge must have been, the teacher's restroom must have been full or I don't know. And she went in and used the restroom and it was the first time it dawned on me that teachers peed. <laughs> I remember being really like blown away by that. It was one of the first things I had to tell my mom that day when she came to pick me up. So I was like, oh my God. And my mom just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> just like, Did you just go to the bathroom? Too? Because they were mythical creatures, right? Teachers were these people you went, they, they lived at school. They uh -huh. only existed at school and they knew everything. And everything was timed and you never saw them mm. do anything mundane like eating or 
Right. You know, going to the restroom, for the love of God, that never happened. Right. They were above, you know, beyond <laughs> those human things didn't touch them. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. It seems like you had a, well, you did have a unique upbringing, right? Because mm-hmm. you got to live in more than one country during your childhood. Yeah. So can you think of a moment like that where it was just like, well, other people's life is not like this. It's not the same as mine. Rather. Like you said, I think it shows up in a lot of different times. I think partly because I was so curious, it was never a comparison. I don't think I spent a lot of time comparing my life to other people mm-hmm. or oh, how come they don't do like this? I don't remember ever having moments where I was really disappointed or surprised or whatever when I was a kid. There may have been for sure, but I just don't remember. Mm-hmm. I do remember when we moved to the States, I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of some of the things that stood out to me. I'll just list a few and you mm-hmm. can pick one that you think would be, might be the most interesting for you. Um, actually, I would say one in Panama, particularly, all the houses had some sort of driveway or some sort of, you know, there's a sidewalk that ran across the front and then there's a driveway. Ours was gated compared to others. Not everyone had, most people didn't have a gate in the front, mm-hmm. but we always had dogs. We had a German shepherd who was fairly aggressive, (laughs) barked a lot. People were scared of her, so we didn't really let her out. So I think people didn't come in and out of our houses, out of our house, like we went into other people's. Mm -hmm. I think that was one thing that was, I thought, pretty interesting to look back, especially in Latin communities, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a close neighborhood, so people walked in and out of each other's houses or went and knocked on the door. For us, they would have to, like, yell from the driveway, Vale! (laughs) Vale! (laughs) <laughs> no one would ever just come up to the house and knock or you know so there was always a little bit of a distance I think that's something that I observed I don't know if I realized it when I was a kid but I think later on I started to kind of notice that and the other thing that stood out to me is in school in Panama we learned I think I was probably about in third grade so I remember learning multiplication tables we had a record I remember our home would listen to this record I memorized it and when we moved to the States, because of the language, I was put in some special reading classes, that sort of thing. I don't remember touching the multiplication table again until much later on. For whatever reason, I don't know, again, I can tell you the age, but I feel like the education was a little bit behind here in the States. And I used to read tons growing up. I'd always grown up reading. We used to have those Disney books you were probably way too young for this, but they had little 45s in the back of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that certain point, they go, and you turn the page. Oh, yeah. I was very little, but I remember those for sure. That so, was like when you did independent reading. Mm-hmm. It was because you put the little record, the record and you on. follow along. With exactly. The big headphones and like, yeah. That's how I remember learning to read or reading a lot that way. And then coming to the States and not being able to read at that same level. That was probably one of the most frustrating things for me when I learned, was learning English, is that I didn't feel like I could read the level that I knew I could read. Yeah, like you wanted to read a whole story like, and you could barely get through a I'm a great reader. Like, what is this? I have to be in a special reading class. And so things like that, I started to notice some of that difference. And then the other couple of things that stood out is maybe in high school. I remember in high school... The first time I realized that I was black and it mattered, that was one thing. And then the other thing, I, when I understood the American sense of humor for the first time, I remember these distinct things like, oh, that's what that is. Okay. I remember just for me, just, I don't know if this happened to you when you talk about the sense of humor. It was in having to explain it to a friend from Mexico. 
she was confused. She just moved here and my friends and I, this was, we're teenagers, we're bantering back and forth and she was confused and she's like, I don't understand what's so funny. She understood English fine. Her English was great. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fluent, but it was very solid. I mean, yeah. she's very proficient. And I remember in explaining it to her, realizing, well, is it a lot of the sense of humor is references to movies and shows. Mm. A lot of phrases come from that. A lot of references mm-hmm. come from that. That's why she was having trouble because she was like, oh, they're not saying this literally. It's only funny because it's connected to this episode, mm-hmm. which of course... A show she doesn't watch or something, yeah. Well, you know, it's either a show she didn't watch or for a long time. I mean, that changed later on, but for a long time, shows were not subtitled, they were dubbed. So her point of reference for the same show was different. Yeah. But yeah, I remember that being a funny moment where I was like, how can I explain to you why this is funny? Okay, well, you know Star Wars. Yeah, and then I, well, when I explained it to her in Spanish, she's like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Like, yeah. And her just being surprised, going, wow, it's like half everything they say is from a movie or a TV show. And I'm like, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. <laughs> it is. I thought about it, but yeah. Yeah. So I know that you guys actually hosted international students, mm-hmm. right? Can you tell me a little bit about that, like how that decision came about and when, how you lived that decision and that experience? Well, I didn't decide that. You know, considering that I was so protective of my Barbies, I was also very protective of my house. <laughs> so I'm like, why is this random person here? The first person I remember we had that came over, we were living in Hawaii at the time. There may have been others. That's, this is the one that I remember, but... It was a gentleman from Micronesia. Oh, actually, yes. So, like the South, South Pacific. And my mother used to work for the Honolulu Theater for Youth, which was a local music and arts and culture organization. They basically would host the performers that came over from other islands or other places. Mm -hmm. And we took on one of these gentlemen. He was probably, I don't know, he was a teenager, 17, 18 years old or something. And at the time, I must have been 12. So it was like a big deal. I was like, well, I hope he's cute. Let's see who this kid is. I don't remember anything cute about him. And <laughs> I think back, I remember him being kind of always tired and just really super laid back. And I don't remember how long he stayed with us, but I do remember him getting kicked out of the troupe, of the performance troupe, because of marijuana. And I was like, that would explain a little bit of the... <laughs> Lethargy. His lethargy came from that. But it was interesting. I don't think I'd ever thought of a country named Micronesia until that moment, Mm -hmm. right? When he was sharing a little bit about where he was from. And, you know, we had an opportunity to look at it on the map. And that Micronesia was actually micro, very, very micro. (laughs) It's a tiny thing. So that was interesting. But then throughout, we had my mother was also very generous in spirit that way. She would not only host international students, and we had a guy from Denmark that lived with us for a whole school year at one point. I think I was in high school, maybe. Perhaps I'd already graduated by that point. But then she also had our cousin from New York move in with us for about three years. I want to say he did his, completed his high school with my younger brothers. And she also brought, brought in some other guy whose family was having a rough time. And she was that type of person that she, if she knew that she could make a difference in the life of a young person by having them come be in another environment, she would in a heartbeat. And she still does that today. There's kids that she, now she adopts these children from other families and (laughs) hey, you know what? Mom and dad can't take you and have you had these experiences. I'll do that for you. 
And so that's one of the things I learned from my mom. She was always really generous and open that way. We weren't the family to have a lot of social gatherings in our house. Like, you know, we had that gate (laughs) in Panama and we just weren't that family for that. But when it came to something like, you know, opening our home for, in this case, my mother opening the home to bring someone that was maybe less disadvantaged in some way or whose family couldn't provide them with the kind of an environment for them to study or to focus on, get exposed to different things, she would do that for them. So yeah. those were a lot of the experiences. I have to admit, I didn't care for it that much because, again, I'm like, why is somebody random person in my house? <laughs> and at the same time, I also appreciate that we got a chance to get exposure to different people and different cultures. And we hosted some people from Up With People once and a lady from Canada and from Mexico that stayed with us for a few days. But then I also had the experience of being in different host families because I worked for that same organization for five years. I probably lived with 400 host families in my lifetime. So Lived with them? Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about that. <laughs> so this organization, Up With People, Viva La Gente. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, but you go on. I've been Googling that. Yeah. So Viva La Gente is a multicultural leadership program that focuses on performing arts, community service, and intercultural experiences to teach young people. And these are college-age youth, right? Teach young people about leadership or to become global ambassadors. And so right out of college, I went to work for them. Ironically, when we hosted two people that came to the small town we were living in in Alabama, Mm -hmm. the woman from Mexico and one from Canada, I was like 16, 17 years old. I was so uninterested in these people. I was like, I got my own friends. I don't know what y'all are doing here. Good for you. This is mom's gig. And so I didn't really engage with them that much. And at the end of the program, we went to see their show. They were asking for, you know, they're promoting Hey, if you'd like to be involved in this organization, come talk to us after the show. And some of my friends from, from high school went out to talk to them, but I wasn't particularly interested, so I didn't. I was going to college the next fall, so I'm like, nah, this isn't for me. Fast forward a few years, one of the kids from my high school that ended up traveling with this organization came to study at the same university, Keith Davis. And Keith and I were not friends in high school. We did not get along that well. I found him to be obnoxious, a little stuck on himself. He was really talented. I remember that, but I didn't particularly gel with him in his you personality. <laughs> what university was this? I went to the University of Alabama okay. in Tuscaloosa. So anyway, so we ran into each other at the post office, I remember, and I'm like, Keith Davis, hey, what's up, Valerie? Hey. So we sit there and we start talking. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you were going to school here. And he said, yeah, I just started this year. Actually, it was I've been traveling with people in the last year and a half. And I'm like, oh, that's right. You did that. How was that? And as he's sharing with me some of the things that he'd done, I just remember calling, is this the same person that I remember from high school? Like, he's so mature and worldly. Like, he just had this sense of been there, done that. Not in a cocky way, but he was talking about how he'd spent Christmas with his girlfriend in the Netherlands. And he was going back to visit some host family in Germany. And then he was going to be traveling to Mexico with some of his buddies. And I was like, wow. So long story short, he gives me the contact information. He's like, they're always looking for people. If you're interested, you should reach out to this person. She's a good friend. So I ended up reaching out, sending my resume. And shortly after I got a call for an interview, And they offered me a position as a public relations representative. And I was studying PR 
in college at the time. And the best part was, I remember college, I just said, I was studying PR, but I knew that for my career, I wanted to travel, I wanted to work with people, and I wanted to use my Spanish. Those were my only three requirements for finding the kind of my dream job, mm -hmm. right? And it so turned out that weeks before my final semester was over, they called to interview me. When they called me back a couple of days later to offer me the job, they said, one of the things, Valerie, we're most interested in is having you go to do um, public relations in, in Venezuela. I was like, yes. <laughs> like, check, check. Oh, oh my check. gosh. <laughs> so I started with them in January of 1996. And from that point on to the year 2000, I traveled to, I don't know how many, over a dozen countries, lived with host families in all different places, worked and got really, really connected because the, the group itself had between 100 to 150 young adults from different countries as well. So we became really connected with them. We would travel for a year and basically, you know, in that year experience up to 100 host families in some cases. Wow. And that's kind of how that program went. But yeah, absolutely life-changing. So although I wasn't keen on having people stay with me and my family's home, I was that person that stayed with a lot of host families. And Are there some that stand out? Yeah, yeah, there's some. So I remember in, in British Columbia, there was a couple, they were older, they were probably in their 50s or 60s or something, and they hosted a couple of us, they hosted two of us. And I remember with them, for some reason, the woman and I just hit it off really well. One night stayed up talking to like one or two in the morning about all kinds of stuff. And uh, I remember we talked about she was sharing with, um, you know, this is her third marriage. I mean, we got like really personal and I'd shared some things about my my parents and my, you know, they'd just got divorced, I think, or were about to get divorced. And so we were sharing some things about that and I was there maybe like three days, four days, but that was one of those instances where I was like, it doesn't take long to get to know somebody. You know, there are people who say that, oh, you know, you just need to take, you know, take years to really get to know a person. I realized that, no, it doesn't. It literally can take hours. For me, it's really dependent on how comfortable someone feels sharing themselves. True. If someone feels really comfortable just opening up, you're right. Yeah. yeah. It, it only takes a few hours. Yeah. I would say that's kind of a superpower of mine yeah. is that I was able to, in a very short period of time, gain someone's trust and share with them as well as have them share some really intimate things about life. That would be one. I remember staying at a homeless shelter once in Ohio, was open to hosting. So we stayed there. I don't know, like seven or eight of us had stayed in this homeless shelter. It was really fascinating. There were a lot of transient people in there, so we didn't get a chance to like really connect very much with them. But the times, the hours we were there, just to sit and have a conversation with somebody that was housed there. I stayed at a, in, in Viseu, in Tondela, Portugal, we stayed in, a, in an orphanage. So we got a chance to spend some time with these young people in an orphanage, wow. and they got really attached. We were there for about four or five days. And so that was really cool to get attached and just to be like a big brother or sister yeah. to the kids, the, the young people were there. I stayed with families who didn't speak the language. <laughs> I remember some of my, my German families when I was in, we were in Germany, we spent about two months in Germany, about a month, but I went back a couple of times. And I remember some of those families that didn't speak English and it was, you know, yeah. I learned you to 
sprechen ein bisschen Deutsch. <laughs> so that was really cool. You I, kind of leverage a, a little bent piece, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever I could. It was along the same vein. It doesn't take a lifetime. With language, I think it's also like that. You don't actually have to be fluent to communicate mm -hmm. as long as both parties yeah. want to communicate. Yes. Because you work hard enough at it and, and you've got someone that's open to it. Mm -hmm. Somehow the message just gets through yeah. and work gets coordinated and you don't even know how, but it happens. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The willingness is, as long as the willingness yeah. is there, you're right. It exactly. does. That was sometimes a concern of a lot of the host family. They were like, oh, but we don't speak English or we don't speak the language. What, what do we do? We became so adept, right? All of us in that organization became so adept at connecting with people so quickly Of course, there's some personality traits that help, oh, sure. you know, if you're more extroverted, that usually happens a little bit faster. But we were so adept at just being with whatever the situation was mm -hmm. that we made it so easy for families to just go, okay, we have someone staying in our home. And I remember I actually learned how to just say yes to everything, too. I used to be a really picky eater when I was growing up. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't like vegetables. And I was the kid that would sit for three hours at the dining room table because my dad was like, you can't get up until you finish everything on your plate. Oh, God, and I'm I like, <laughs> I got time. Let's see who wins this one. You know, and I'd sit there for three hours. So I'm like, I could be here all night. I entertained myself. <laughs> and it was like a battle of the wills. But when you're, you know, when I started to travel and live with different host families and I was often given plates of food that I didn't always recognize the ingredients or the cooking method or the whatever. And Because I know what it takes to have that kind of experience, I didn't want to be that. And I've seen some of my colleagues that were like, oh, I don't eat that. Or mm, I can't eat this. Or, oh, what is that? I didn't want to be that person. Right. And so I would just say, I said yes to a lot of things. I'm like, huh, don't know if I would ever eat this again, but sure. And um, yeah, just all kinds of interesting experiences. Wow. I don't even know where to start. Probably 400 right. families is like, Oh, geez. Well, I'm definitely looking up that organization. For Please it, so. do. Yeah, it's, it's a I've good. got it right here. I've got two tabs yeah. open. I'm up with people. Spanish, the Viva la Gente, and I've got the Up with People. Yes. And I'm all about finding out about them, especially because they're young people in my life that I think would benefit from that sort of experience. Life-changing. I think um, traveling, whether you do it when you're young or you do it when you're older, although I think it, it influences more of your life when you do it young for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. right? You start to understand not just how interesting and how beautiful and amazing the world is, but how small it is and how similar yeah. we all are. That's what I got. I got that we're, the world is much smaller than we think and it's a lot more similar. I could go anywhere and feel like I'm a part of that culture. Right. And just like, okay, there are dangers. There are dangers right outside your door. There are dangers across the world. Sure. But that same connection and safety that you feel here, you can feel everywhere totally. else. Totally. 100%. And I think that changes how you feel, how you go about your life, how yeah. you embody who you mm -hmm. believe yourself to be. And mm -hmm. I think traveling is one of the best things anybody can do for too many reasons, even people that don't like to travel. I agree. I learned so much about myself. I think that's the other piece that we forget. I learned as much about myself as I did about other places because it's like, oh, Valerie in this situation, Valerie eating this type of food, Valerie in this kind of weather, Valerie in this kind of environment. Like, how does Valerie react to this? Do I like this? Do I not like this? Is this comfortable? Is this uncomfortable? Like, can I, do I find a common ground with this person? So it was really an opportunity to kind of see me interact in different, it expands. I think the thing about travel that expands us is the opportunity to see ourselves 
experience something different and see how we would handle it and manage it and what we embrace, what we, we kind of retract from. That was probably the most fascinating aspect of, of traveling and learned a few things. One is I learned about myself. I was much more conscious about those things that I was exposed to. I learned how to connect with people in a very short period of time. We often in that organization, we were the host family average just like three days. Not a lot of time. And in those three days, we were still doing other things. We were performing and we were doing community service and we weren't in the home all the time. So in short, it was a dinner and that was the time to connect. All right. So learn to people, connect with people. And then the other one is to take advantage of every moment. I remember going to places where, oh, there's an event. And I was like, yeah, let's go check it out. Let's just go do it. And I've always found that just saying yes and showing up. I find some really cool, interesting, like I would have never, ever found this on my own kind of thing. Yeah. It reminds me, I went to Japan a few years ago. I have a younger brother who's been living there for the past few years. And when I went to visit him, I also knew I had one of my Up With People friends who I hadn't talked to in almost 20 years, but you know, we were on Facebook together and I was like, hey, I'm coming to Japan. Is anyone around that I could connect with? And she was like, oh my gosh, Valerie, you gotta come see me. <laughs> And so she was about 45 minutes away from Tokyo. I happened to spend, I was going to spend three days in Tokyo, four days in Tokyo myself. So we met up and I can't remember exactly how we, this all came about. Maybe she looked it up or something. She's like, let's meet up in this city. And it so happened that they were having like the one festival of the year. That's like the biggest festival ever. It was amazing. It was cultural. It was colorful. All the foods and the music and the processions that we would have never found had it not just been just say yes, meet up and let's see what happens. Yeah. And I think you're right that that's something that um, I think happens more when you travel because at oh, home, yeah. how many times do we get invited to a million different things? You're mm-hmm. like, eh, I already took my shoes off. And that's <laughs> yeah, that's so true. But when you're traveling, because you know you have a limited amount of time, yes. that that limited time really does mm-hmm. push you to say, "Well, I'm putting those shoes right back on." Yeah, this is happening. Although there's some people who are like, "Oh, I'm here for two weeks. I have time." I don't say that anymore. I never say that I have two weeks anywhere. I just go like, "What's today? All right, what's tomorrow? If I really physically can't do it, then okay, I'll stay home because I'm just exhausted or sick or whatever." But yeah, there's no, I can do that next time. Mm-mm. Do yeah. it today. Exactly. It's like yeah. you, you, you may not overcome exhaustion, but you do overcome apathy. Yes. Easy. Yeah. yeah. So with all these people, wow, you've got so many people. Who are some key people that have actually helped shape who you are? But my parents, for sure. I think, mm-hmm. you know, this whole attitude of being able to just go and experience and get exposure. Both my parents are like role models for that. My mother, first of all, she was a teacher for 20 years or something in Panama before we moved to the States. And here in the U.S., the requirements for teaching are different, right? For a teacher is different. So she, in order to go back into the school, she'd have to go basically back to school and do the whole entire schooling again. She's like, I'm not about to do that. So she found other creative ways to use her talent. My mother's never been like a victim of circumstance (laughs) ever. And we moved around a lot because my dad was in the military. So every three years or so, she'd have to start over. He would always be guaranteed a role because that was, you know, that's the reason we were moving. But she was never like, oh, I guess I can't ever really work in what I love. No, my mother will always, always land on her feet, no matter where. Her thing was bloom where you're planted. Mm -hmm. So I, I learned that from her. 
And my dad specifically, his thing was he knew that he wanted to go as far as he could go in the military. He was probably, when he joined the military, he was the, at the cutoff. Like he couldn't go, he was like the year, they, I think they'd only let people in at 30, age 34 or yeah, 35. Yeah, I think 35 is the cutoff. 35 is the limit. He was like 34. And another person would have been like, oh, I, I'm only, I can only do so much. He's like, I'm going to ride this thing as far as it'll go. And I remember hearing things like he got his black, he was stationed in Korea for two years. He got his black belt. He was in his 50s when he got his black belt. He's like, oh, just because I could. And then he, you know, the military would pay for his education. So he got a master's degree on, in online learning because he was like, yes, I need to take advantage of this stuff. So from my dad, I got, there's this agelessness about life. Just go do it. My mom, bloom where you're planted. My dad is like, just do it. Be the best you can be in whatever circumstance. I think they by far have been some of the most instrumental in shaping me. And then the one teacher that I remember to this day that that's really had a huge impact on me was my band teacher in high school, Mr. Bullish. And I remember specifically Mr. Bullish because I was kind of a brat in high school. (laughs) You know, we were military kids in a kind of a local small community in Southeast Alabama. So really pretty conservative town. There were only about two busloads of military kids that went to this local high school and everybody known each other for like generations and just wasn't my scene. And I remember deciding it was also socially segregated. You know, I remember the first days I walked into the cafeteria, black students sat on one end, white students sat on the other end, just socially. It wasn't because of any It wasn't enforced. No, it was just people. That's how people grew up. This is who they knew and how they're comfortable. And I remember going, "Uh uh-uh, this is not for me. I do not belong here. I'm just going to get through these for the next four years as quickly as I can. So I really retracted into myself. People thought I was introverted in high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Because I just didn't, I would take a book anywhere. I didn't really engage with people. I just didn't feel like I needed to invest my time or energy, especially my first two years. And then I had a couple of friends that were like, we should try out for band. I'm like, band, why? They're like, oh, that'd be fun. Something for us to do in our school year. They go to the, ba- to the, the marching band and they go to all the football games and that'd be kind of cool. And I'm like, oh, okay, why not? So ended up joining the band and the color guard, you know, the flags and stuff. And Mr. Bullish, he was that teacher that loved to talk about not only the work we were doing in the band, but he'd also get like philosophical with us. You know, he'd have these little chats, like a TED talk. He would give his TED talks during the day and we were like, some people got into it and some people didn't. But I was always like, hey, I was listening for some wisdom. And Mr. Bullish, after my first semester in band, I remember he called me to his office and he was like, hey, Valerie, what are you going to do next quarter, next semester? You know, it's a concert band season. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'll probably find another elective to take. He's like, have you thought about being in concert band? And I was like, not really. I don't really play an instrument well enough to be in concert band. He was like, well, don't you play the piano? I'm like, yeah. And I said, but I stopped playing the clarinet. I'm like, I don't want to. He's like, we need some people in percussion. If you're open to taking some drum lessons and learn how to, you know, manage the, the mallets and the sticks, we could use some people in mallet keyboards. And I'm like, hmm. So he hooked me up with a with a drum instructor. So I worked with a drum instructor for like six months throughout that semester. And I played the chimes and the xylophone and the bells. And I was like, cool, this is kind of nice. And I enjoyed it. And people are awesome. And then the next semester, 
he called me back in his office at the end of that semester. He's like, so are you going to be a marching band again this coming year? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm planning on it. He's like, have you thought about trying out for captain? And I'm like, Mr. Bullish, I only did it once <laughs> last year. There are girls who've been there. This is their senior year. I'm like, ah. He said, think about it. I'm like, really? He said, I think you'd be good. I'm like, okay. He said, you'd have to audition and everything. But I was like, okay. So anyway, fast forward. I ended up trying out. My audition was horrible. I just wasn't that creative. We had to make up our own routine and pick our own music and all that stuff. And I was like, this is not for me. I could execute okay, but I was like, not that creative type. So I think out of the five or four or five people that tried out, he calls me and Brandy Jerkins into his office. And he's like, girls, congratulations. We're like, what? He goes, Brandy, you're going to be captain of the color guard. And I'm thinking... Okay, well, why am I here? Valerie, you're going to be co-captain. And I'm like, what? Brandy was not happy because we've never had co-captains. <laughs> she did not like the sharing business. It's like, what is this? And essentially what he told us, he said, Brandy, you're absolutely gifted at creating. You're a wonderful choreographer. You understand movement and you know how to create what we need on the field. Valerie, you're a great coach and teacher you know how to talk and how to work with the team so that they can actually produce. And I was like, and I'd never ever until that moment thought of myself as a coach or teacher, but I knew what he was talking about. Cause I was the one that would volunteer to stay after and help somebody with some technique or like try to, you know, motivate them, understand what's going on with them. And that was something that came really natural to me. And I was like, Oh, I see what he's talking about. And from that moment on, I started to notice how I did that in all these areas of my life. And so by far, he was the one person that, who today, now I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm an executive coach, and I work with leaders and really making sure that they're developing themselves and working with their teams out of that conversation and that opportunity that he gave me. And what a neat way to learn as a young person how to combine strengths with someone else yes. to build a team. Totally. You know, because I don't think that that's something that's common. I got that in high school through some particular classes, but in general, I don't think it's something that's explicitly taught. You're taught to build teams and, and do things collaboratively, mm -hmm. but that whole um, experience of really understanding this is what I'm good at, this is what this person's good at, this is, and putting it together like a jigsaw puzzle. I don't yeah. think that most young people get an opportunity to really experiment with that. Maybe yeah. now they do, I don't know, but when I was in school... I don't, I don't think it was a very common experience. Maybe if you're in team cool. sports, it's probably a little bit more exactly. evident because you have people that have different positions and exactly. different strengths. But if you talk about a project that you're doing for school or something, not, we don't value it like we could here in this culture. But I think you're right. I mean, team sports, I think that's one of the reasons why they're so important because they mm -hmm. do teach you that. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking more like academically, yeah. which is the closest experience a young person will have to professional collaboration. Totally. Yeah. And so I think it's really neat that yeah. your band instructor gave you that. He saw that, yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah Brandy and I worked well together. I don't remember any drama about any of it. I mean, at first we were kind of like, why? This doesn't make any sense. But actually it did because, yeah, I couldn't choreograph it. And I wasn't interested in any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I was probably, I had a better relationship with the team members that I could really see where I needed to work with somebody mm -hmm. more so than probably she did innately. So yeah, it was perfect match. Very cool. So then at the end of high school, high school's over and it's time to go to college. Mm -hmm. What did you think college was going to be like? Like, what did you expect before you knew anything about 
college life directly. I mean, obviously yeah. direct experience. What did you imagine it was going to be like? At the time, I wasn't even interested in going to a four-year school, actually. I wanted to go to a community college because that's where my friends were going. And so I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go with them because I didn't have any big desire to, I don't know if college really meant that much to me at the time, but my dad was like, no, you're going to a four-year school. And I'm like, but my friends are going, but I don't care. You're going to go, you can apply for whatever grants or whatever loans. I'm like, and my older brother happened to be going to the same school. So I guess I'd also seen it through his eyes. He'd been there for a couple of years and we'd taken him there. So I kind of saw and I was like, I'm not impressed. My teenage years, I was not the most positive, especially around my family. Everywhere else, I was cool. But with my family, I was always like, whatever. <laughs> Such an attitude. So I don't think with college, I had anything other than the idea of just being with friends, people that I knew. And so when my dad said, no, you're going to school with your brother, I was not happy, obviously, because I didn't get my way. <laughs> but I was more like, fine, whatever. I'm just going to go and just go get through this. And my first year was kind of tough because I couldn't connect with some of the people that I thought in my dorm and stuff. My brother and I weren't that close at the time. So I was like, I don't, he's boring. <laughs> I told him this. We just didn't connect. And he was always very intellectual and read a lot. And, and I was always a little too chatty. And we just, we didn't match up that much. But I started to get exposed to people from other cultures. So I started to see college as an opportunity. That's where I started to feel more at home, to be honest with you. Although we were living in different places and with military kids, you know, that traveled quite a bit, even those that were born in other countries, it's not the same being born in another country on an American military base because you're still American, Americanized, your parents. But when I started to meet people from other countries who were there to study, I felt a lot more at home, a lot more connected than I'd ever remember feeling before. Like, ah, oh. was it because they were there intentionally or because they, they were immigrants? And I don't remember ever being feeling like, I mean, I, I came to the States so young. I don't remember feeling like an immigrant. Very short period of time when I was learning the language. But beyond that, we were around American people a lot. So it was that moment where I was just like, oh, oh, gosh, okay someone from another country. And I don't know, I just really connected with them a lot better. I don't even know how to articulate what the connection was. I felt like the conversations were more interesting. We had a lot more, even from other countries. It didn't have to be Spanish speaking, especially because my brother was playing soccer a lot. And so most of the guys he played soccer with were from Latin America, they were from Europe, they were from Africa, they were from, there was a melting pot of people that were out there. And so he started to introduce me to that community. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And I always felt, I didn't know it at the time, but I've been a global ambassador. I've kind of, I feel like I'm a world citizen. And I belong absolutely anywhere. And it wasn't until I had those experiences of traveling to different places where I felt like, oh, I could totally be here. But that was like the introduction to like, oh, like these are my people. Cool. You found them. I found them. <laughs> Out of that, I met my best friend. She's from Mexico. She's from, the, from Juarez. And it was like, of course, she's my best friend. We get along so well. We could be more opposite on paper. You know, she was there supporting her husband who was working on his doctorate. She didn't go to school there, but they were, you know, married and living together, of course. And that was this, you know, I was like freshman, sophomore in college. 
independent, you know, different culture, born in, in Panama, but also having more of an American lifestyle. She was in her 20s when she moved to the States. And so we had, on paper, different. Even today, you look at us, she's raised two kids who are both in college now. She's not had a career other than really being devoted to her family. And I've been all over the world. But there's just something that connects us that's really deep, right? It's the values that we have. She's the one person that I would say, We've always want the best for each other. There's no judgment about how it looks. There's no judgment about what she does or when she goes and who she goes. There's never, and the same for me, as long as the, we're the best version of ourselves, wherever it is that we are. Yeah. Whatever you're doing, I just want you to be at your best, you know, for both of us. And so those are the kind of relationships that I think I created in college, you know, with her and the other people too. Eva, for example, was the same I don't know what it was about the international group mm -hmm. that had me just get drawn in so quickly, but that was huge. Yeah. And that's where I found my home. Like I was a president of the International Student Association, <laughs> like the largest on-campus organization that we had. And a lot of it was just like, you know, let's, let's get these community of people working together and like showing up for each other and representing our countries and cultures. I wasn't as interested in like the showcasing of it, mm. but I'm like the people connecting part of it. Yeah. That was really more my thing. Yeah. And so you were also around a lot of languages. Yes. Did you study other languages or were you I, happy with your bilingualness? <laughs> well, what's funny is I studied Spanish. I have my second major is in Spanish, so PR in Spanish. Oh, okay. Yes. And now why did you decide to study Spanish? Well, because I realized when we moved to the States, I learned English really quickly mm -hmm. and, you know, watching TV. And we were surrounded by English speakers almost 100% of the time once we moved here. We went to Panama for Christmas one year, maybe about four years after having lived in the States for the first time. And I remember going to see some of our old neighbors, all teenagers at that point, too. And they had a party and we're all hanging out. And I couldn't remember how to say certain things. I had the vocabulary of a nine-year-old, basically. Mm -hmm. And I'm like 14 at <laughs> this point. And I'm like, hey, como se dice? <laughs> and so I was at this party and everybody was joking around and having a blast. And I was quiet. And I was talking to like a couple of people here and there. But I just couldn't say what I wanted to say. I couldn't make the jokes because I didn't have the confidence. And I was like, uh-uh, it's not happening. So when we came back from Christmas vacation, I actually started taking Spanish in high school first because I knew I needed, for some reason, I knew intuitively that I just needed. High school was a breeze because it was all the stuff that I learned when I was in elementary school. But when I got to college, I tested into graduate level courses. So it was more about writing. That was like really needed more of the focus on writing and reading at that, at that high school, college level. That's what I got from the university level courses and it made such a difference because I knew also this again intuitively that I wanted to use my Spanish for whatever I did in my life. I didn't want that to be a barrier for me. I wanted it to be as fluid as possible with the language. Mm -hmm. So I knew that studying it would give me the edge, would just, yeah, yeah, easy enough. Which, yeah, I, I got a double major and that's kind of what happened there. And then I also took a semester of French. I wasn't quite as interested in French and continuing with French, but I thought just for the exposure. Yeah. And then my travels have always kind of given me a taste of different Sure, yeah, languages. you pick up a little here and there. Which language did you speak at home? At home, we spoke mostly English. Really? Yeah. Well, the reason for that is but my parents, so I don't know if, if you got this from Eduardo, but our family is Afro-Antillana, mm -hmm. right? So that means that 
our great grandparents were born in the Caribbean islands, like um, Jamaica or Barbados. And I can't remember. There's another island in there. But then they immigrated to Panama during the building of the canal. So my grandparents were born in Panama. My parents were born in Panama. And then my brothers and I were born in Panama. So what happens is when you have these immigrant families coming for the construction of the canal is that they always stayed with other immigrants. They generally went to the same schools or the same churches or built communities with close to each other. So they were English speakers. So my great-grandparents only spoke English. They grew up speaking English, and, you know, and they moved to Panama, only spoke English. My grandparents spoke only English at home, and then they lived in these communities with other immigrants and so speaking English with their friends too. My parents' generation spoke English at home with their parents, but started going to Panamanian schools. And so they learned Spanish with their peers. Mm -hmm. So my parents grew up perfectly bilingual. And then by the time my brothers and I, the next generation, we were more integrated. So we spoke Spanish and English at home and at school. When we moved to the States, they'd seen how many of their peers, my, my parents saw how many of their peers immigrated and didn't do that transition with the kids on their language. And their kids were held back in school. And because education was always super important for my family, they were like, uh, 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 we're not having this issue. We're going to speak English at home so that you guys don't have any problem. I remember my dad asking us to call him daddy. Daddy? <laughs> we were, he probably said daddy at the time. I don't know, but we always call him daddy now. <laughs> but he wanted us to speak only in English because he knew that we were going to have issues at school if we didn't. And so 80% of our conversations with my parents, maybe 95%, probably more like it, is English. And my younger brothers, who were four years old when we immigrated, don't speak any Spanish. They don't even remember. We have recordings of them when they were kids, when they were three, four or whatever years old, of them speaking in Spanish. They were like, what am I saying? <laughs> oh my God. What am I saying? What am I talking about? Why am I laughing? <laughs> so, what am I finding so funny? Yeah. So as an executive coach, what does that work as a coach reflect you know, of you as a person? How does your personality come through in your coaching? My work? coaching. Well, or your experiences, even not just your personality, but all these life experiences, you've traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. So that contributes. I think anything that we do in our life contributes to our work. Sure. But yeah, all of this intense travel and all these great international experiences and the way you grew up. How does that come through in your work? I think a couple ways. One is, like I said earlier, I've always been really curious about people. And so I, my go-to is always just trying to ask questions that would help identify something interesting in the other person. So asking people things that they may not even ever ask themselves or they've never had anyone ask them. It's really interesting for me because I like to learn about people and I like to have them reflect on who they are too. And then also feel it makes me really adaptable and creative in my approach. So one of the things that I find really interesting is everybody has something that they're after in this life, right? Mm -hmm. We all have, I'm not just talking about some tangible goal, like I want to get this promotion or I want to have, you know, I want to, I want to retire at, at age 50 or whatever. But we all have, I think, some things in life that we want to accomplish. And I feel like my, all the exposure and the stuff that I've done, I have more of this can-do spirit. I'm like, we can do anything in this life. So not, nothing is impossible or out of reach. I feel like I've seen and done so much. I'm like, easy. Let's just figure out what's getting in the way. Yeah. I think that helps. There's no, I don't have an attachment to how it needs to look. And then the other piece is 
Um, I can also be really creative about how to approach it because people have different personalities and sometimes people are more this or more that or less this or less that. And I feel like being able to work with so many different cultures or different nationalities or different languages or different places, I feel like I'm really comfortable maneuvering the intricacies of the human spirit. <laughs> the adaptability. In conversation. Yeah, I can just kind of go with whatever it is that I'm yeah, yeah, don't get thrown off very often. So even with that can-do attitude, we have a finite amount of time on Earth, right? So life mm-hmm. life demands choices, and getting good at making those choices, I think, is yeah key. Of course. Um, tell me about a dream you've had to walk away from, or you've decided to walk away from, I should say. Because I think sometimes, at least for me, there can be competing priorities, but sometimes you do have to make a choice. It, sometimes mm-hmm. it is one or the other. Why? Because give me an example. Time. You know, because time. Because you can't live fifteen lives. You can't mm-hmm. decide to be um, a doctor, a lawyer, an artist, yeah, and a scuba diver, yes. and all before you're forty. I mean, that, that's, you have to make choices in life. Got it. Okay, and I think I know where your question is coming from. So <laughs> I'm remembering some other things that we've talked about in the past. <laughs> I would say, Laura, that I. I don't know if I've ever walked away from a dream, but I I started to get really clear early on about the why I do certain things. I walk more readily into the why and the who of my life than to the what and the how. Right? Mm-hmm. Let me explain what I mean. So the what and the how in life are things like I want this type of job. I want to live in this location or I want to finish my school in how many years? Four years. And I want to, you know, learn how to do X, Y, Z so that I can get X, Y, Z result. So the what and how's in life are usually the things that are really tangible, tangible markers that you're achieving certain things. I can't point to when and how I pick this up, but intuitively I feel like I've been more driven by the who I want to be in life and the why I want to be a certain way. So the who I want to be is wise. I can tell you the moment I decided that wisdom was going to be my thing. I was in vacation Bible school class, I think it was. I was probably 12 years old, and we learned about King Solomon in the Bible mm-hmm. and about his decision about having to cut this baby in half to determine who was the real mother. And I remember thinking, I'm like, how did he know to do that? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, as I read more about his wisdom, I decided I want to be wise, too. I want to know how to make the right decisions. I want to know how to bring out the best in people. Like, I just want to know things. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the areas that I decided to pursue wisdom. And then the other thing is my why is always about coming alive. My favorite quote is by Howard Thurman. He used to be a mentor to Martin Luther King. He's a a theologian and an author. And the quote that stood out to me says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs are more people who have come alive. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It was so powerful when I read it. And I don't remember how, how long ago I came across that quote, but I felt like, oh, this is my purpose statement is coming alive. Like whatever I do to bring something to life, to experience joy, to experience a sense of fulfillment. And so I don't feel like I've ever walked away from a dream because I've always pursued who I want to be in life and why I want to do those things. That always looks different. So right now it looks like becoming a coach. But even now as I'm going through this journey, I'm like, well, what kind of coach do I want to be? And what kind of experiences do I want to have as a coach that make, that what brings me to life when I'm coaching? 
right? Is it a one-on-one? Is it with a group? Is it this culture? Is it coaching for this kind of career field? And so I just pay attention to those things. And those are slight course corrections. They're not necessarily like, oh, I can't do that, although I really want to. It's like, oh, this looks like this right now. Mm-hmm. And not to say that those decisions aren't easy. They're easy. I find them harder because most of our life we're told that what's and how's are the ways to get to our goals, mm-hmm. not the who's and the why's. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that we're taught to pick a what, decide on how, yeah. and then find your why. Yeah. Make up your why. <laughs> yeah, it makes more sense to do it in reverse. You have to find what what moves you, what makes mm-hmm. you, you know, yeah. feel amazing. And from that, well, you can, you know, discover different ways to exactly. be. Yeah. Like even I remember just with college, when I decided that I wanted to speak Spanish and I wanted to work with people and I wanted to travel, although those are, they seem like what's, little, uh, some what's and how's. I mean, for me, it was really more about, I want to support people. Like I want a partnership, but I also want to support. So that's more of like the why I wanted to do things with people. And then when I think about travel, I wanted to be exposed to a lot of different countries. I wanted the wisdom that comes from engaging and exposure. So that's really about the who for me. And, and then speaking Spanish to be able to leverage something that, you know, that would also give me even greater exposure in different cultures, right? The ability to connect with different people. So again, I, mostly about the whys and the who. And yeah, the whys and the who's. But what was interesting is what that looked like was taking a job in this multicultural organization. It was learning certain things, you know, certain career fields, reading certain books, saying yes to certain opportunities. Every single step, I had to do a how and a what. That, you can't walk away from the what's in the house, but they don't drive me. They're, yeah. not, they're not the reason that I say yes or no to certain things. Very seldom, because then I notice that my path will change depending on what my why and my who tell me that I should be at the moment. Right. Is there an emotional reason why Spanish was also important? You know, if I look back to that one party that I went to, I felt really left out. Mm-hmm. I remember I, I just couldn't express my sense of humor. And I'm like, I'm a fun person to be around. And, <laughs> you know, and, and these people that I was with knew me when I was a child. And I remember a few of them were like, ah, so te crees americana ahora, right? And they were joking, but they were like, oh, you, you know, now that you're in the States, you're like this American. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was kidding, but I, I also felt like, no, I, I really, for me, connecting with people is really important. And I don't think that I really got to show who I was mm-hmm. at that stage in my life because I didn't, have, didn't master the language, really the confidence to speak the language. And at that age, you know, everybody's so self-conscious. Anyway. I was going to say, it's such an awkward age. Yeah. yeah and the on team. top of it, not being able to connect with your friends the way you want to. Yeah. yeah. The emotional part was just really being able to connect. Right. Being able to connect with them. Because I felt it was miserable not being able to joke around and have fun and, you know, laugh. And I love to laugh. And like, okay, como se dice? Like, by the time I figured it out, the conversation had already moved on. And I was like, oh, wait, but I remember now. Now I can. So. so people that knew you when, before you moved to the States, when you were a little girl, you're nine years old, you haven't left yet. Mm-hmm. If those people, you could sit down with those people now or see them now, what would surprise them about you? How have you changed from that little girl to now that would be maybe surprising to them? Mm. You have seen some of them actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. So you actually have real life feedback. Yeah. I remember it's been a few years now. 
maybe six, seven years or so. But I remember going to visit my best friend, her family. She's married now and her family that used to live next door to us, still in the same house. I think what surprised them the most was just my worldliness. Mm-hmm. Worldliness, not because I was walking around with a fedora with like <laughs> duels, but worldliness in the sense that I, you know, all the places that I traveled to at that point in life, they stayed in Panama, you know, literally living in the same house that they mm-hmm. lived in when, when I was growing up. So I think the contrast of having mm-hmm. left and then having done all these things in different parts of the world versus staying in the same community. And in some cases, I was so young. I mean, you can't ever really predict. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking of like, you know, yeah. um, how people described you when you were little and you know who you are now. And mm-hmm. just kind of like, wow, what are those changes? And maybe mm-hmm. even... In reverse, what remains of you? What's something that's always been just the same? That they would see you and there's that moment, you know, when they haven't seen you in 20 years or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that they're like, wow, you're so different. But then you talk for a few minutes and they're like, oh, no, it's you. Yeah. They rec- that moment of recognition of, yeah, you've always mm-hmm. had this about you or I recognize. I don't, I don't want to make this up, but I think one thing that they would say that's the same is just how lively just being lively just coming someplace and lighting the place up by some laughter or just engaging mm-hmm. with a lot of different people that was something that I always did quite naturally as a mm-hmm. child even with adults I think that's the one thing I really appreciate about my childhood that I was pretty fearless in talking to I probably prefer talking to adults more than I talk to, to kids mm-hmm. right to other children I feel like that's something that they would probably say now it was no different talking to me as an adult mm-hmm. than I was when I was a kid. You're still very lively and engaging and you ask questions. That's an interesting question to go back and reflect to see if I don't remember feeling different. Obviously, Spanish, you know, the, the language, my Spanish now has smoothed out a bit. So it's a little more neutral. The accent is a little bit more neutral. No one ever said anything, but I, I imagine that the way I speak Spanish is a little different than the, the Panameño Spanish because, mm-hmm. you know, my best friend is from Mexico. My ex-husband is from Argentina. <laughs> a lot of my travels have taken me to different countries and cultures. So I usually pick up and adopt a little bit of the different terms and the accents. I think that might be a part of what they also pick up on. My specific Spanish is a little less Panamanian, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's got influences from experience so you were married before. Mm-hmm. Did you marry um, some another language speaker or an English speaker? Or? No, he was from Argentina. From Argentina. Oh. Mm-hmm. How long were you married? Three years. Three years. That Spanish might have influenced. Or did you speak Spanish at home? He and I all spoke Spanish to each other. So yeah, that might have actually tweaked it a little. Of course. Para qué estás haciendo? Estás loco. Y era porteño. He's from, from Buenos Aires. Right? Uh-huh. So that's yeah. that particular part of the country. And it's funny because people would always make fun of me. My friends or family would always know like, who I was spending time with based on what I, how my Spanish sounded. Yeah. So I'm like, like Valerie, ¿tú hablas como una Argentina? Like, you speak like an Argentinian <laughs> because of whatever accent. If I was spending a lot of time with my best friend who's from Mexico, my mom was like, oh, you've been with Lily because your Mexican Spanish is coming out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember some of my proudest moments in Spanish were when people didn't know where I was from. I mean, first of all, there's not that many black people in in some of these countries. Like in Argentina, very seldom do you find someone that's dark skinned like me. But I remember going to Mendoza, Argentina, and it so happened I was in a taxi cab going to the hotel. 
And I was asking the driver questions, you know, but I was, I pick up whatever the accent is of the place. So I'm like, ¿Y esto qué? ¿Dónde, dónde, dónde queda eso? Y nosotros vamos para no sé qué. This kind of had the same song equality to their Spanish. And I remember him asking me, ¿Vos sos de aquí? <laughs> like, you, are you from here? <laughs> like, no, no, I'm Panamanian and I live in the States. Ah, no, es por el acento. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> and it happened to be in Mexico City also. I yeah. had been there for I don't know how many days. And of course, you know, the acento mexicano just kind of stuck with me. I went to the airport and I was going to buy something at the, at the gift shop. And the gentleman, I'm like, I don't remember what I said to him, but I was like, ¿Hay cuántos pesos? Whatever the... <laughs> and he's like, ah, ¿de dónde eres? Like, where are you from? I'm like, ah, yo soy panameña. Ah, panameña, ¿de veras? <laughs> sí. <laughs> he was like, es que no, es que te noto así como un acento mexicano. And I was like, yo, no, ¿cómo crees? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I, se me pegan los acentos. But I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you actually like camouflage. I love it. No, because I think, first of all, it gives, it's an opportunity. And this is kind of a, I guess, the subtext of all this underneath it all. That, that whole thing I was telling you about like, connecting with people and mm-hmm. how the world is so small. I think that's one of the things that I've always, that's kind of been one of my why, maybe mm-hmm. one of my whys about travel also. But I want to show that, you can connect with any country and culture and adapt seamlessly for the most part. Obviously, if you see me walking down the street, most people are like, I am Americana, right? Because of my dark skin, because I'm tall. And if they're not other people who look like me in that culture or very seldom do they see people like me, there's a, all of a sudden there's this, this expectation. But when they start speaking with me, I love to kind of have that moment where people go, what? I was not expecting this. <laughs> I think what it does is help people stay open and curious. That little judgment or that barrier or that little prejudice or that little whatever it is that, you know, we have in our mind when we evaluate a person or evaluate a culture is now questioned. Yeah. Just in that instant. So that guy from the airport, he may never think about that interaction again. But if nothing else, he now has a little piece of data in his mind that he goes, I shouldn't assume some things. Now I'm going to ask a question. A follow-up question. That yeah, I think mostly it's, the, it's inspiring the curiosity now. Yeah. So the next time that someone walks in looking like you, he may not automatically assume. Yeah. He knows exactly who that person is, what they're about. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. that's very cool. And Joe would ask a question that he might not have asked before, so. Yeah, and approach with more curiosity and less apprehension. Totally. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. And now you've actually stated fully the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> well done, Howard. <laughs> I want to ask one follow-up question just um, yeah. because I'm, I, I didn't think to ask it, but I am curious. You mentioned at one point, you remember that first moment when you realized you were black. Mm-hmm. What was that like? <laughs> and did it matter? Like all of a sudden you're like, wait, someone has a label for me and mm. I fall into this and it matters somehow in this culture. Yeah. What was that moment? Well, the moment was in high school. I'd grown up in Panama. We have a very diverse population, especially in the capital. You'll see everybody under the sun. The shades are different. We have people who have Asian descent, people who are Middle Eastern descent. You have people who are, you know, of native. So you have everything. And then when we moved to the States and the military, you also see quite a bit of a mix, right? Although you don't let me see the same level of mix but you, you know i remember there are people who were from you know asian and you know people who are caucasian and also black and puerto rican i mean you get it all 
Now, when we moved to uh, a military bases in the schools, that's, that was my experience. But when we moved to Alabama, I was starting high school. And so I was in ninth grade. We just left Hawaii. That was like the best of diversity in this country is the state of Hawaii. <laughs> so you see everything there, especially in the military bases. So I remember leaving Hawaii and coming to Alabama. And um, my first day of school, in the bus on the way there, because there were, like I said, a couple bus full of military, other military kids, mm-hmm. didn't make a big difference because all of us had traveled and lived in other cultures and countries, so it was no big deal. But it was like when I walked into the school itself and I realized that, you know, there are certain hallways and I'm like, almost everybody's black in this hallway. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, oh, almost everybody's white in this hallway. That's weird. And then the cafeteria, when you actually see in one big room, you could clearly see the difference. And that's the moment that I remember going, oh, being black matters here. And I remember rebelling in my head. I'm like, I'm not going to go sit with black students just because I'm black. I'm like, that's stupid. And then, you know, of course, I had to watch television shows and I'd heard enough about Jim Crow and all of those kind of things already that I already had this mentality about what the South of the U.S. was like. And I remember thinking, nope, I'm not falling for this. This isn't going to be me. And I ended up finding some military kids in the crowd that I went and sat with. I'm like, and I remember feeling kind of rebellious, like I'm not going to be put in some sort of box because of my of the color of my skin. And, and I think that was the other piece, maybe even in college that showed up because in college, although it wasn't quite the same because there was a little bit more mixed still socially, you go into the cafeteria and you would see people of similar race sitting with each other. And I remember Eduardo and I, my brother and I, we were the international crew. You'd think it was a UN meeting because you would sit at a lunch table and the person you know, from Mexico and Cyprus and Greece and Turkey and Pakistan and Costa Rica and England and Sweden. That was who we hung out with for lunch. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that said a whole lot more about who I was and you know, what I was about than sitting with another group just because the color of our skin looked the same. Yeah. And I even remember this guy used to, in, in college, this is interesting. And it wasn't, I think it was just another love, no, another cut of black and being in, and having matter. Um, he was white um, from the South and blind. He was in the marching band with us. And, mm-hmm. and so I was in university marching band for a couple of years. And I remember he and I became buddies, just, you know, casual acquaintances. And he, he also went to, same, to the same lunch, um, the lunchroom that I went to in the same dorms. And so whenever he would, you know, he was around, I'm like, hey, Tim, you want to come sit with us? Oh, yeah. So I'd lead him over to the tables and we'd all sit down and, you know, kid around and everything with a group. And I remember one time walking him out. He just needed someone to guide him to and from the, from the cafeteria to the main area. And, and he asked me out, but not like, it was, he was like, hey, do you want to hang out sometime? You know, like, yeah. like casual, like no pressure. Do you want to hang out sometime? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let me know. That'd be cool. And I wasn't necessarily attracted to him, but I thought he was a nice guy. He was like, why not get to know him? Yeah, well, get to know him more. And my curiosity, of course, right? And a couple days later, similar thing. He was with us at lunch and we were walking out. And then he said, Valerie, I have a question for you. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, are you black? And I said, yeah, I am. He goes, oh, okay. I'm like, why? Why do you? Yeah, just somebody told me. I was like, couldn't tell. He said, I couldn't tell. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, uh, not likely when you can't see. Yes, that would be. 
I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but I remember having that moment of like, huh, this is interesting. And we, he never brought up the whole, we should hang out again. And again, we were casual friends. So it wasn't like we saw each other every day, but I remember distinctly that question and that I couldn't tell. I was like, oh, I didn't think it was something to talk about. I didn't realize it was something. Well, he clearly had like an expectation of what what you would sound like in Alabama if you were black. Totally. And so you were in Alabama being black, but you weren't performing that identity the way he expected. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. And that's, you know, kind of like what I was saying earlier about even when I was in Argentina, when I was in Mexico, that moment where people are like, huh, Mm. oh, okay. But I just thought that was interesting. And again, like I said, just another cut to that whole being black matters for some people in some cultures. And for me also, it mattered that people didn't see that, Mm -hmm. you know, just like I didn't see what passport you had as a determination of who you were as a person. Right. Like it's something about you, but it isn't you. There's a difference, I think. Totally. Even the men that I've dated, my ex-husband was Argentinian. I dated a man from India, dated a man from Egypt. (laughs) What kind of makes sense? So you traveled a lot. So you're exposed to a lot of different cultures. Yes. And so you're open to meeting a lot of different men. I mean, it just kind of makes sense. Yeah. And it's never been about the culture or about the nationality. It's really about the heart of the person, right, the exactly. personality, the values, and mm-hmm. that goes beyond anything that we could ever see physically. Mm-hmm. I just so. think that when your experience is more limited, mm-hmm. maybe it's harder to be open enough to just meet everybody. Yeah. And that's why there's less variety. That's likely. So it's not that you're looking for variety, but if you grow up with variety, you're just kind of open to yeah. everything. Like cooking, right? We were talking right, about earlier. Exactly. You know how to cook with different spices. You may not be able to make the dish from that country. I know how to use this spice, <laughs> and I can use it in this in this dish. Well, yeah, too. and then you end up using it in ways that, like, um, I remember came back from Turkey. I brought back a whole bunch of sumac. I mm. loved it. I was like, this stuff is good. Mm-hmm. But man, I put it on things. I'm sure Turks would be like, what, <laughs> what are you, are you doing? doing? <laughs> I don't care. Right. Let me introduce you to tacos with sumac. Yes. This <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You put it into like, say, okay, well, this is something wonderful I've learned about you, but I'm not trying to be Turkish. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I do not think that your spice is <clears throat> awesome. <laughs> but here's, here's another food. <laughs> here's another way to use it. Here's yeah. another way to leverage it. Yeah. yeah. So I think this human connection is very similar for me. It doesn't need to stop at language and passport and country and origin and culture and religion and all of those things or level of education I feel like I can learn something from anybody yeah really cool well thank you thank you very much you can continue to get to know Valerie on her YouTube channel time to come alive there's more info for you in the show notes and on the show blog at meettheneighbor.com. Thanks for joining the conversation and join us next time on Meet the Neighbor. We'll be talking to Raj Daniels. We'd love to hear your stories. Meet the Neighbor is produced by Tamagam LLC. Our audio engineer is Diego Velasquez. I'm Laura Tamayo and my friend is Valerie Hope. See you next week. Thank you.